and me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. All these years I've stated. Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And this episode, I will be continuing my look at Cannibals and Missionaries, the final novel written by Mary McCarthy, published in 1979. Um, it's, it's about a hijacking. That's the theme of the novel. It deals with Middle East politics. It explores art, class, uh, religion to a certain degree, the politics of, of empire, NATO. There's a lot in here. There's a lot packed into this novel. And kind of like... Uh, Birds of America, her previous novel, she had written that almost eight years before, though. You know, it's 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 a novel kind of just exploring on many different topics, and it doesn't really have a really clear center. Um, this one is framed more as a adventure or or a thriller almost, but it doesn't feel like that. In fact, the novel, to be honest, is is kind of boring, and it's 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 going to take a certain type of person to read it to to like this. I, I'm finding a certain pattern here. Um, I really would dug Mary McCarthy when I first started reading her. Her stuff from the 40s and 50s, I really, really liked that. There were a few exceptions, uh, a few examples of things I really didn't get into and, and just devour. I've been finding these last two novels by her tougher to read. They are very different. I, I think the group, that novel, the group, is, is kind of the peak of my interest in Mary McCarthy, and it's been kind of declining ever since. Unfortunately, that said, this novel does have some interest. I, I don't think it should be on the top of anyone's list, and it, and it probably isn't the top of many people's list. And even if you're in, in reading Mary McCarthy, this is probably not the first work you go to to get a taste of her and to get a feel for what she's about. Nevertheless, I, I think it's worth taking a few minutes just to go through and, and see what's in this this story because she is trying to do a lot here, and I, I think I, I I appreciate that and. And I like that she's trying to be contemporary. She's dealing with contemporary issues. And she does engage in questions of, 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 of liberal politics versus radicalism. That's an old theme we've seen in a lot. And her tension in the early novels that she wrote, the tension seemed to be between radical people living rather conventional lives and the pressure to live a conventional life next to one's radical politics. We saw that a lot in her first few novels. In The Girls of Academia, you have it. Uh, even in the group, in a way, even though that's much more overtly feminist politics, it still deals with the reality of life versus the, the ideals we may have about what kind of life we should live and what kind of ideas we should embrace and what kind of uh, politics we should, we should pursue. Uh, this novel plays with this as well. Of course, the, well, we really have three groups in this novel playing off each other. Maybe a fourth group is in the backdrop. The first group are the, the liberals, and these are represented by the people in the economy class, um, and they are, they were on their way to Tehran to engage in kind of a fact-finding mission about human rights under the Shah's, Shah, Shah regime of Iran. And they're, they're Amnesty International types. You have uh, journalists there, a journalist named uh, Sophie Wheel. You have um, a, a bishop, a, a preacher, a reverend, both Episcopal. You have um, a politician, kind of a Eugene McCarthy-esque type of politician. Um, uh, 
you know. So these are the liberals, and they're they're on like a do-gooding mission to 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 Iran. And if you read the title, you think, well, they're the missionaries, right? The cannibals are the hijackers. But it may not be that simple. I don't think she ever fully explains, you know, who's kind of on what side of this. But if you know, it, it, there's clearly someone here who's supposed to be the cannibals and someone's supposed to be the missionaries. And I think in the next episode, I'll talk about the cannibal missionary story because actually does come up the game the cannibal missionary math game but anyway the first group is these liberals the second group would be the hijackers there's eight of them and they're called the palestinian um what is it the palestinian freedom something or the palestinian people's army something like that they're they're ideologically very mixed they have uh, many different goals many different demands and their their main agenda was to ca capture this mission and, and to use them as a, to ransom for their various demands. And what those demands are, we'll, we'll get to a little bit in this, this episode. So there are eight of them, and they're a mixed group. That's kind of an interesting thing about this. They're not all Arabs, as, as you might expect. Uh, there are two Arabs there who are associated with the PLO, but there's also two Dutch. There's a Uruguayan, Uruguayan, there's some Germans there too. So it's ethnically a quite mixed group. Um, now we have a lot of characters here. Uh, in the first episode, we talked mostly about the liberal contingent, um, and and we got into their heads. And a lot of these characters sort of fall off the map in the book. I think it's a problem with the novel. Is it, there's like just too many characters for for a novel of this length to go into them individually. It, it's kind of like the group in that way, where we don't spend that much time with any one character, and so we don't really feel too attached to any of them. And they, they do end up being kind of disposable. By the end of the novel, they're all basically essentially disposable. Um, but the second group then, so the first group, the liberals, the second group are the, the radicals, I guess. They're the, and they're, they're, they're nationalists. They're kind of uh, for like Palestinian independence. They're also socialists, kind of radical Marxists in their ideology. They're, they're kind of mixed ideologically, but they represent the radicals. And then you have, in first class, the least well-articulated group in the novel, and that's the, these art dealers, these art collectors, right? And what happens in the novel, essentially, is the radicals go from demanding, basically holding these people ransom to get some political demands, right? Like, they want the Dutch out of the NATO. They want, like, like Israel to leave Palestine. You know, they, they want political prisoners to be set free. They, they have these lists of demands. Um, that's what they go, but eventually when they realize they're not going to get that or not be successful, they just shift to basically extorting the first-class passengers for their artwork, which is a lot of Vermeers, Rembrandts, things like that. So really expensive, valuable artwork, but it's not really clear what they are able to really do about that, right? So this allows Mary McCarthy to go into a little bit of the politics of art and the meaning of art and the value of art and access to art, which is something we've seen her talk about before, actually. It showed up in Birds of America a little bit where you had the whole question about how can a socialist society ensure that art is available to everyone when it's not accessible. In fact, just to do an aside, I, I saw an article, I think it was the New York Times or something, uh, it was like an opinion piece saying we should stop displaying the Mona Lisa um, because it becomes like a, ch the argument was essentially it becomes a checklist place and then so millions of people go to see the Mona Lisa every every year and it's not a very big picture right it's the Mona Lisa is not that big and you end up with you know hundreds of people in a room all with their you know trying to take pictures or, or or get a look at it and then they can leave and they don't really experience it as art it's just something they pass through and it's not good for the artwork to be on display all the time it's not good for really the tourists now it's not going to happen obviously there's too much money involved I guess in, in this attraction but the argument is essentially that 
you know, if you want to see the Mona Lisa, you open up a book or you can load it up online. You don't need to go there physically, right? And there's better things to see, or, you know, or there's more things to see. I guess it's in Paris, right? Than just the Mona Lisa. And, and I think some of that uh, is something she's certainly interested in, and she showed, talks about that in Birds of America. And it comes up here, too. Um, and basically, we have two different groups fighting over artwork by the end. And, and you got the, the rich who want to hold on to it and defend it, but they're basically being held hostage, so they, they end up having to give it up. So anyways, that's, those are the three groups. So you got, got the rich, the elite, the radicals, and the middle class. So if you want to take this airplane... Later on, it's a helicopter, and later on, after that, it's a, it's a, it's a house they occupy. They seize from a farmer on the polder. The polder is the reclaimed land from the ocean that in the Netherlands. Like they drain the they drain the coastline right to create more land space, and some people farm it right. It's pretty remote. That's end up where they they stay after hijacking the plane. So they're all in one place, and so it's kind of a microcosm of society in a certain way. Something Mary McCarthy likes to do quite a lot in, in several of her works. So there's a lot again. There's a lot of interesting things going on in *Cannibals and Missionaries*. I just don't think it's put together in a particularly compelling way. I found it rather boring, a bit of a slog to get through, and not. I didn't. I didn't feel blown away as I did in like *The Company She Keeps*, which is just amazing, or *The Girls of Academe*, which is just amazing. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my initial thoughts. So I looked at the first four chapters in the previous episode. You can go back and listen to that if you want to know my view on that. Basically, there we meet people like Frank Barber, the Reverend, the Episcopal Reverend, Gus, the Bishop, uh, Jim Carrey, the Senator, Eileen Simmons, who's kind of a, she's, she's an academic who's on this mission as well. There's another professor named Victor Lentz, an Oxford historian Cameron. Uh, we have, um, yeah, Jim Carrey was the Senator. We have a journalist, Sophie Wheel. These are all the people living in their own coach, right? Now, overall, there's 24 passengers. This includes the first pass, passengers, the passengers in coach, and the crew of the, of the airplane. That adds up to 24 people, and the hijackers are eight people. So that's, that's our whole like, little society we have here. The first part of the book really looks at those. The second part of the book, I'll look at chapters 5 through 9 today. These chapters get us into the... The heads of the hijackers a little bit more and we start to learn more about the, the upper class the the millionaires in in first class and what they're about um they're the least well articulated group though but no one is really that memorable frankly by the end of the, by the, end of the novel but they're the least they're just totally in the background which might suggest something about what mary mccarthy's trying to say about about society right they're not the most visible members but they have a lot of power and significance in the backdrop of everything all right, sorry, I had to fix the, the sound recording. I'm having troubles with my blue snowball here. It's, I think it's a power issue, and it comes and goes. Um, usually I catch it, but um, there's, there's ways of, of going and working around it. Yeah, but i got to keep, keep vigilant on it. Okay, anyways, uh, yeah, let, let's jump into the middle part of this novel and, and, and see where it takes us. Um, so when Chapter 4 ended, we basically the hijacking took place during Chapter 4, and they were still in the air. Right. So in chapter five, we're still in the airplane, and the focus of this chapter is our one of our Dutch, the, our Dutch character, um, Vliet van or Van Vliet de Gouge, is his name. He's he's one of the more interesting characters among that kind of liberal contingent, 
And he's essentially trying to negotiate and talk with the hijackers. It's kind of a funny conversation. In fact, one theme that I think Mary McCarthy, uh, one thing she's trying to say in this book is just how amateur and foolish and, and conflicted and kind of aimless and, and, and ridiculous these hijackers are. Again, from a post 9-11 standpoint, it's hard to, it's kind of striking actually how just incompetent these hijackers seem to be. They don't seem much of a threat at all. Um, they don't even like kill anyone until the whole thing blows up at the end. Um, they kill at, at one point like a, a dog or a cat or something. And they shoot a body of someone who died of like a heart attack. And they Gus, the bishop, dies of a heart attack later in the novel and they shoot him. But they're not really capable of, of that much violence. And they, they're doing a violent thing, but they're not that interested in actually following through on their threats to kill people. Uh, and then they're also very conflicted. And it, it kind of, the fact that this hijacking victim can sort of try to negotiate with, with them Partially, he's doing it because some of the hijackers are Dutch, so he thinks he can kind of communicate with them. But he now this this character, one of the hijacking victims, is actually baffled by their choices, baffled by what they're doing and the way they're they're going about it. And he's actually trying to almost be a troubleshooter and giving them advice. It's, it's really quite um, funny to watch. I I also think this is our first real it's really real clear statement that we're dealing with these millionaires in first class. Right, and he also thinks, why not use them? Which, of course, what eventually what they do is end up using that the millionaire's wealth against them. But he wonders, why not do it right away? So he's he's sort of a kind of aiding the hijackers a little bit. Um, a nice little conversation in this chapter, though, about Amnesty International, about whole the ethics of punishment and all that. And and this is again from the liberal standpoint, right? The, these characters they're going to Iran to investigate conditions for political prisoners, right? So there's this kind of an anti-state sentiment in a lot of these, among a lot of these people in coach. And it, some of it expresses in their ideas about things like crime and punishment and, and prisons and, and all that. So here's what he says. He says, um, this is uh, stream, you know, stream of consciousness. Quote, no one had asked him his opinion, but his work with amnesty had convinced him that all prisoners were tortured. The difference was one of degrees. Prison itself was a torture and especially excruciating to violent revolutionaries of today's school who lacked the patience of the old revolutionaries. They could not accept incarceration as a stage like puberty in their political development. These young gunmen, for example, would never be willing to mature quietly pent up in a Western jail while awaiting trial by authorities whose legitimacy he did not recognize. To him and his comrades, detention was per se unjust. Right? A lot of interesting things there. One is, of course, this, this kind of uh, liberal attitude towards punishment seen itself as, as kind of a type of torture, right? And this is, of course, shared by even prison abolitionists today who, who see there's something kind of vile and vicious in imprisonment in itself that that's, doesn't make it any better than old-style corporal punishment or exile or the things they did. And reread Foucault's Discipline and Punish to get some perspective. I know he was a little bit more, I wouldn't know if you would call him a liberal, but... Um, the other thing is this, this kind of the decline of revolutionary kind of uh, grit, I guess, that he's observing here. And I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, you can't look at the 9-11 hijackers and, and, and agree with them entirely. But, you know, this, this, this feeling that like the golden age of revolution was like the early part of the 20th century, right, when when people were willing to risk their lives to go to jail to to really suffer for 
for a long period before actually achieving their goals, right? There's plenty of counterexamples, though. Nelson Mandela is one, of course. But there's still this feeling here in the, in the 80s that that kind of golden age of revolution is gone, right? And that, of course, creates a space for, for the liberals to say, well, we have a solution, a non-revolutionary solution, you know, based on human rights, based on, you know, state regulation and, and you know, openness and, and all these kind of shared values you know, for progress. That doesn't have to be revolutionary. Okay, uh, chapter six. Chapter six takes us, I mean, it's kind of a, it's, it, it kind of gets us from, from here to, from one location to another. It's, it's mostly what happens in chapter six. Um, uh, the only really important plot thing that, that seems to happen in this chapter is this greater focus on the class distinction among the hostages between the first class and the uh, economy passengers. Right, that this awareness that there is a lot of wealth there among the first class passengers and and also the hijackers learning that the wealthy passengers have these collections on board their the airplane, that these collections that are worth millions and millions of dollars and could be used. And so so eventually essentially what happens in chapter six is they 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 have to land the plane, they get on a helicopter and they take the helicopter to a polder. So again, the polder are these drained wetlands on the coasts of, of the Netherlands. So it was this was done to, get, to create more farmland because Netherlands isn't very big. Of course, it's a lot of it's under sea level, so it was an engineering marvel. But uh, you know, apparently there's these farmers in living on the polder, and they eventually go to this house on the polder, which is kind of a remote area. You know, without much vegetation, without many trees, but there's this farmhouse there, and they seize the farmhouse, and they end up in this barn uh, attached to this farm. So that's where the rest of the novel is going to take place: is in this um, farmhouse in the polder. So there's, in addition to the plane, the people who were hijacked on the plane, you have this family who basically gets their home taken over by the by the hijackers. And they begin to relocate there and set up that to be their base of negotiation and to be the, found, you know, the, from where they'll, they'll have their siege. It's not, it's not, it's not all, this whole novel's not all set on the airplane, right? By midway through the novel, they, the plane's grounded and they, they take this helicopter and, and relocate to the polder. So Mary McCarthy spends a lot of time Talking about this place is very bleak and, and, and very remote and very boring and and it's cold too. It's like almost zero Celsius at night, so it's also very a cold, miserable place for them. So, yeah, that our idea of being just confined, being a torture that Van Vliet mentioned in the previous chapter. I mean, there's some truth to that, right? Like, although these terrorists don't commit too many acts of violence against until the until the climax of the novel where everything just sort of blows up it, it seems that's the only way mary mccarthy knew how to end the novel because it really wasn't going anywhere so just blow the whole blow everything up right um to, it's kind of a stephen king uh solution to to the problem um but it, i mean she she does a good job just describing this as kind of a, a nasty place but all these people then get put together there and they have to create more like a society it, it, they actually start to interact a little bit more and you know talk to each other a little bit more the terrorists and the and the prisoners and there's even like hints of romance between some of them and it's kind of funny to watch but mary mccarthy doesn't have a whole lot of time to to do this so it's um but it, it's not bad i mean it's there, there's some skill certainly in constructing this novel i just think it's too much too crammed together and, and just a little bit 
sluggish. Um, I do think thing I do think things start to pick up in chapter seven and eight, where we start to to see more from the point of view of the hijackers themselves, and we get more of their their point of view, and it, it, it allows Mary McCarthy to kind of engage in a dialogue that she's really used to talking about, and that is the politics of radical politics, and maybe the hypocrisies of radical politics or their limits. Uh, it's it's contradictory nature and all that, and, and she's really good at that stuff, and she's and she doesn't like losing her power in talking about that here with a very different group of radicals. Actually, people do do stuff. I mean, one complaint she has of radicals and other works is that they don't really do anything. They just are kind of bourgeois intellectuals. You know, these people are actually doing something, but they, they just sort of fall on their face. It's, you know, this could almost be a comedy if, if done right, you know, like a dark comedy perhaps. But it, if, if like filmed properly, it could be kind of a, a rather bleak comedy because everything is kind of so farcical and preposterous the way it's unfolded. These are not professional um, hijackers. I mean, they don't seem to be. Uh, they're too divided. They change their plan mid-course. Mid it's, it's just it's kind of fun to watch. Uh, but anyways, chapter seven. Chapter seven is all from Sophie Wheel's point of view. She's a journalist who is with this mission, and she's the person who maybe has the most experience with, in the Middle East, the most experience with crisis situations. Um, so mostly what happens though in this chapter through her point of view is this, the work. They're basically the, the hijackers are forced to force or are required to force the, the prisoners to engage in physical labor in order to kind of prepare the house, you know, and get it ready for the siege that's going to unfold, right? And get the food ready and, and everything else. So it's actually, actually they're, they're conscripting these prisoners to physical labor. And Sophie Will, you know, gives commentary on that labor as it takes place, and as well as her thoughts about the whole situation. They have to do things like um, like clear clear lands so the helicopter can take off and move about. It's, it's I mean, that's a lot of kind of drudgery, drudgerous physical labor that they have to, that they're engaged in. Now, what's on the mind of the hijacking victims while those are sticking place? Well, their concerns are fairly banal and, Again, we talked about this in the last episode, how the characters don't seem to really feel like their lives are in that much danger. There's kind of a, a feeling that these hijackings are routine. It's, it's more like Somali piracy or something. Like It's like they take the ship, the company pays, and then everyone, and then that's the end of it, right? It's just you got to wade through it, right? That's how they feel. So they're most interested in things like, is there food? You know, is there amenities at the at this farmhouse is you know is it going to be how what's our life going to be like they're they're concerned with really basic the things of of survival and, and comfort um and they're they're not the they're not the people who are best able best capable of of, with, of withstanding this kind of environment and, and situation obviously all right the, the center of chapter eight is this is one of the is the head the leader of the hijackers a dutchman named jorn and he's Maybe the most thoughtful, the most well organized. He's the guy with the plan, and he is—he is an interesting character. And Chapter Eight is, is our best look at him, and we deal a lot with his politics, the, the the thoughts, the contradictions in in the philosophy among the hijackers. I mean, one really interesting one is he sees these polder farmers as essentially um, working class, not exploiters not part of the nato conspiracy or anything like that he sees them just as working class essentially um but like the palestinians 
and some of the others called them kulaks, which of course was the Soviet term for rich peasants who who were not who were not down with collectivization, right? And they got repressed during the collectivization drive of the 30s. So it's kind of a uh, basically it's a general leftist term for a class collaborator or a, a, a middling class people who collaborate with the ruling class, right? So they call them kulaks, and they use this to sort of justify taking their their stuff. Um, now Giorn knows they need to take their stuff because they need a place to bunker down, they need a place, uh, base of operations, all that, but he doesn't see them as class enemies, but some of the others do. Um, and so there, there's kind of this class analysis of the polder farmers. It's, it's, it's kind of a fascinating aside. And it just gets into a lot of debates among the, within the left about who is part of the working class or not. You know, and that's, of course, uh, got a long history. Um, his own philosophy, though, is, is articulated in this, this chapter. And one thing is he doesn't see himself as a typical Leninist, right? Uh, he did not accept the position typical of Orthodox Leninism that the philosophers had been sheer obscurantists. Some of their terms, if reinterpreted and purged of ruling class overtones, pointed to truths that the revolutionaries should embrace as their own. There's a potential in man in rising, for rising above, in other words, transcending gross material concerns that the revolutionary by his acts and examples sought to bring into full life of every human creature, while the bourgeoisie and all bourgeois revisionists sought to strangle it at birth, above all in the working class masses, but finally pre-force in themselves. The argument of practicality, which Greet was invoking to disabuse the Arabs, could make no impression on them since it was essentially a bourgeois argument. End quote. So it seems that, uh, that Jorn is a little bit more open-minded uh, than a strict materialist in his... In, in, in his view, he is, he is clearly on the left, but he, he's, he's got a, he doesn't have such a doctrinaire orthodox reading of it. And that flexibility allows him to be a little bit flexible in the plan, right? So it's in this chapter that he comes up with the plan to basically seize art, seize this artwork. And instead of, instead of holding the, the, the liberal delegation to Iran as hostage, to basically hold the millionaires as hostage for the art. But then the question is, what can the art be? What can the art do? What revolutionary function can art have? Now, their initial demands were a bit ridiculous. Like one is they're going to, uh, one demand was that they will, you got to free all prisoners, all political prisoners in the Netherlands. Uh, the Dutch have to leave NATO, uh, independence for the Palestinians. Um, things like that. These are things that aren't going to happen, really, it seems to me. Really, like, the more practical demand of money, you could see more likely fulfilling, but these political demands, it didn't seem, were really going to happen. So you understand why Jorn basically kind of very quickly abandons this more idealistic approach and, and just focuses on the art. But he also, at the same time, wants to understand, like, to have a clear idea of why art can be why seizing art can be itself a revolutionary act and not just the act of a pirate. And it, it's something I haven't read that much about or thought too much about myself. I mean, I, I guess I have read some things about the socialist debates within Soviet Union, within China, about what the rule of art is within a socialist society. And that, that discussion is, is revised here or reconsidered here. But what could be the place for old bourgeois art in in this, in, in, a, in a stateless society, right? I, I, I'm not a person who thinks it should be destroyed, right? But, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. And, and 
Jordan gets a little bit into that thought, but like what the function of this will be, but it doesn't go very far because at the end of the day, it's basically for the money is what they end up switching to. Switching to. So whatever his ideals are about revolution, about overthrowing capitalism, overthrowing American imperialism, or the domination of NATO, at the end of the day, that it just moves into this the, the banality of a of a drive for money. Um, but as for this debate about art. Um, this discussion is in this chapter as well. Quote, he hated art for art's sake, though he accepted the party's teaching that in a classless society such a wasteful indulgence could finally be afforded. Then he became disillusioned with the party and turned sharply against it. He saw that he had left himself be deceived. It was merely another part of the system of worldwide oppression, openly as in the Soviet Union or covertly as in Holland, where it served as a willing safety valve for the masses' discontent. He was ashamed of having had his work in the world healed, which did not tell the truth as its name pretended but just a different set of lies. When he broke, he passed almost overnight to direct action. He became what was called a terrorist, unquote. So in his particular case, his disillusionment about art as a means of social change, the banality of his own artwork leads him to direct action as a better solution, right? So, but the, behind the, in the backdrop of this, though, is that debate, like, on the one hand, in a socialist post-scarcity society, people will have time to be artists, and that art could be meaningless, right? It could just be what we'd now call, you know, kind of bourgeois art, but it would be the foundation of that, the material foundation of that would be a socialist equality. In a class society, though, art almost functions as propaganda, right? And art for art's sake, if it exists, is either just a, an, an indulgence preserved for the bourgeoisie, for, for the elite, or at worst, direct pro-capitalist propaganda. Right. Of course, art was then used as propaganda in socialist states, and that's something he talks about here as well. Uh, Mary McCarthy writes, quote, Now art, even the party kind of making propaganda, lost all interest in him, except in a sense that a deed was a work of art, the only true one he had become convinced. The deed, unless botched, was totally expressive. Ends and means coincided. Unlike party, art as a weapon, it was pure. Its own justification added no aim outside of itself. Its purpose served by the capture of the Boeing was simply the continuation or assertiveness of the original thrust. Ransom money, the release of fellow actionists, was not the goals in which it came to rest, but instead of ensuring repetition. End quote. So this is the philosophy of propaganda by the deed, essentially. Uh, he has, it doesn't quite say it this way, but it's very close to it, which I've, I've seen it talked about in anarchist circles. It was kind of popular 100 years ago among some anarchists that a deed, an act of, of terrorism, an act of like, who is it? Uh, Berkman shooting that boss, right? I guess that has more direct function, though. He was actively oppressing people. But, you know, like maybe a political assassination or a bomb somewhere could inspire other acts that collectively will eventually tear down the system. That's the idea. So um, now direct action, as I understand it, is not always just terrorist acts of destruction. It, it shouldn't be, right? It can be, you know, feeding the homeless, right? Instead of giving to charity to feed the homeless. It could be um, directly like planting trees or something, right? It, it, that, those can be direct action as well. Although his, this character's version of direct action tends to, tends toward the more destructive um, idea. But anyways, a lot of, lot of fascinating things in chapter eight about, about activism, about direct action, about art and politics, about uh, he, this character's own turn towards towards socialism and revolutionary uh, activism. Really, really interesting chapter. But like so many, so much of this book, I don't know where it like it. 
it doesn't really come together that well. Like a whole book about this guy might be kind of inspiring and interesting, but it's crammed in with all these other characters who we barely ever hear of. Like the first character we meet, Frank Barber, that that um, fairly interesting. Okay, okay. I mean, he's not my favorite character by far, but he's not. You know, he's not totally boring. But he's gone. I mean, you don't hear from him at all. He's just like off the page for a long period of time. So, anyways, that's chapter. Chapter eight is kind of good, though. I, I, I rather enjoyed it. So in chapter nine, they, they start to settle into a more of a routine. We return back, I think, mostly to Sophie Wheel's point of view. Uh, we get a little bit more about the collectors, though. Actually, no, I think this chapter has quite a lot about the collectors. Uh, maybe this is our first real close look at them. It starts out basically from Wheel's point of view, but eventually we, we're introduced to, to some of the, the, the art collectors, the millionaires. Um, but the main fear, so this, this chapter is more about class and the class dynamics among the, the hijacking victims. Um, but, but, you know, a lot of what's going on here is the fear uh, just about running out of supplies, the, the fear of a long siege. You know, they start to be more anxious about what is going to happen to them. But again, it's not an overt threat of the terrorists that they're feeling. It's not that kind of dramatic terror of, of being a victim of a, of a hijacking. It's this kind of fear, like where the chocolate, where's the chocolate going to be? You know, or you know, what are nights going to be like? That you know, are we going to have medicine? These kind of day-to-day -day fears of just supplies, of, of dreariness, because it starts to drag on for day after day after day in this in this house, and they they start to really don't see the end, and they start to feel just worn down by that, eating that same plain food every day, all that kind of stuff. Now, at some point, it's revealed to the to the millionaires that their freedom is contingent on them giving up their artwork and they start to come to terms with that and and they resist this at, at first but they really they're not in a position to to say too much so they end up having to to eventually hand things over but um, a lot in this chapter focuses on the the mindset of the millionaires who, who really resent what's happened to them obviously and are horrified that their their wealth is being attacked you know, they're, they're, they're more comfortable when it was just a purely political act, when it was the liberals that were under attack. But as soon as their wealth was being attacked, they, they start to, uh, you know, take it much more personally, which, of course, I think is a really interesting commentary just on the attitude of the rich, right? Uh, the world can be shitty, but as long as they're in their gated communities and protected and have their nice house and nice stuff, they don't care that much, right? And they can let, they'll say, fine, you can have your revolutions you can do your politics you can they might even help they might even support charities or whatever but when it starts to hit their bottom line then they get uh, defensive and start to organize to defend themselves uh, now these people don't I, I think that'd be a more interesting novel to actually see i mean this is how almost i would have written it is once they realize that their artwork is under threat then they will they will organize the crew against the terrorists because that's the only thing that they care about, right? They do nothing when it's the they're they're just waiting for the demands to be accepted or rejected about the this liberal delegation to Iraq or to Iran. But the minute it targets them personally, then they get all puffed up. That that I think would be a, a really funny take on it. We don't quite get that, but we do see them like resisting a little bit. They're this, but they're just not in a position to do it. So eventually, in the next part of the novel, they start to you know hand over the stuff. So anyways, that's, that's chapters five through nine of, of Mary McCarthy's Cannibals and Missionaries. 
um, in the next episode, which will be the final episode on Mary McCarthy in this series. If Library of America ever comes out with a volume of her nonfiction writing, I'll be sure to to get that and, and talk about it at some point. But for now, um, just one more episode on Mary McCarthy. Uh, so anyways, if you have your own thoughts about cannibals and missionaries or, or the politics of terrorism in the 80s or art as in revolution, you know, revolutionary circles and that time period, you know, if you have any comments on any of the themes that are in this novel, if you've read it, especially if you've read it, let me know what you think. Um, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can just leave your, your comments below. So um, that'll be it for now. I'll see you next time with my finale, the finale of my 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 study of, of Mary McCarthy. Thanks for bearing with me and making it for all those years since I've got the pill. I'm tired of all your crowing, how you and your hands play. Another's on the way. This chicken's done for a furnace, and I'm ready.